great to be with you today, worshiping the Lord as we share His Word together and sing together and pray together, all those aspects of worship together as, as the body of Christ. On this memorial weekend, where we honor those who have died in the service of our country, was originally established in 1868 after the Civil War when so many had died in that huge war that uh, it was established that we should celebrate Memorial Day and remember those who have died sacrificing their lives, being willing to give up their lives for our country. And, of course, for many of you, Memorial Day is the time of remembering those loved ones who have gone ahead of you and whom you miss terribly. It's a time of remembering, of grieving. It's a time of remembering that death happens. It does. It's something that we can't avoid in this life. It affects all of us, those around us. You can't, you can't avoid death, really, if you pay attention to the news at all. There's deaths in Iraq and deaths around the world and deaths right here, nearby, Moscow, wherever. And we all have friends and family who die, and we even have reminders of death in our own bodies, don't we, as we get older and, and our minds start to go, some more quickly than others, <laughs> as our bodies deteriorate. These are all signs that, that death is real and we can't escape it. No matter how much we try to stay in shape and take the right vitamins and do the right things, the grim reaper keeps creeping up on us, doesn't he? Closer and closer. We cannot fend off death. So for many of us in our culture, though we try to avoid thinking about death, our culture is terrified of death. If you think, really think about it in the way that it approaches death, because our culture doesn't know how to handle it. So we cling to life with everything we have. And, but eventually, death reaches us, no matter how much we tried to avoid it. As Some got together and did an extensive study and spent a lot of money studying and they determined that death affects one out of every one person who's alive today. (laughs) In other words, none of us avoid it. (laughs) So how should we as Christians face death? We all have to face it. How should we face it? Should we face it differently than the world around us? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. We should have a whole different take on death. What should be different? Well, our passage today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18 will show us, will tell us. But I want to set some context for you just to remind you of where we are in the book of 1 Thessalonians as we work our way through this wonderful little book that Paul wrote. He... uh, he wrote it to the book of Thess- to the church in Thessalonica. And that church, remember, he was only there for three weeks, maybe a little longer, perhaps a few months, but not very long. So it's a church that was not really very well taught. He was there for a while and then he was run out of town through persecution. He was deeply worried about it, so he, he wrote this book to encourage them in certain aspects of their faith. You see, they lived in a culture that was very difficult to be a Christian in. Thessalonica was kind of the center of the Roman Empire of that day. 
And it was a place in which the emperor cult was very powerful, very strong. It was a Roman stronghold. And the emperor cult said, Caesar is Lord. And you had to proclaim that verbally, publicly, to be part of the Roman Empire. But these Thessalonians had come to Christ. And so for them, it was very different. Jesus is Lord became their proclamation. But that meant some things. First of all, it meant persecution because they could no longer declare Caesar is Lord. And so they were more persecuted than any other church that Paul wrote to. It was difficult to be a Christian in Thessalonica. But also, Paul writes in this section in particular, chapter 4 and chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, to help them see that if they are going to live with Jesus as Lord, then they need to live differently than the world around them. And this section is a great encouragement to us to think about what does it mean for us to live with Jesus as Lord in a culture that's antagonistic to our faith. Corey talked last week about the first part of chapter 4 where Paul is writing to encourage them that if Jesus is Lord, then we should live differently as Christians in the way we handle our sexuality, in the way we love one another as brethren, and in the way we handle our money. And now in today's section... Paul writes to encourage them that they should live differently in how they handle death, how they face death, how they deal with death. Because Paul's heart is the same as Jesus, which is we are here as the church of Jesus Christ to show the world that humanity can be restored, that people can be restored to a relationship with God and it changes your life. If Jesus is Lord, you begin to live differently than the world around you. You see, we are to be a sign to all the world that God is real and He is alive and He is at work today, that He truly is Lord. Do you realize we're here? I mean, why didn't God just take us to heaven when we were saved? (laughs) Well, we're here not for us. He didn't leave us here for the church. He left us here for the world that we could be assigned to the world, that God is at work restoring humanity. So, all the great movements of history, creation, the fall, this period of redemption where God is redeeming people and calling Him to Himself, all of that points to the final consummation, the second coming of Christ. And that's what we focus on today, the second coming of Christ. And so we are to show people that He is coming back that He is real. And therefore, we live differently in light of that. So let's look together at our passage, chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 13 through 18. And we'll see how we are to think differently and live differently in how we face death. Now, the reason Paul wrote this section, it appears, is that the Thessalonians were, were confused. They weren't very well taught, as I said. And... Paul had taught that Jesus is coming back. And so they were anticipating, they were looking forward to it. But suddenly, some of these who had become believers began dying off. And they hadn't been taught about what happens to those who have died in Christ. And they were worried about it. So Paul wrote this section to give them hope and encouragement in the face of death when our loved ones are dying. 
what happens to those who die in Christ. So that's this section. Let's begin with verse 13. Paul writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now, Paul uses a common euphemism here for death, sleep, but it's a very apt one, isn't it, for us Christians? Because when we die, physically we die, but we essentially are waiting to awaken, to awaken in heaven, to be with the Lord forever. So he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep, who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So you may not grieve as the rest who have no hope. Paul essentially is dividing all of humanity into two groups here. There's a group that has hope, who are believers, and there's the rest. And he says, all the rest have no hope. All the rest have no hope. The hopeless and those with true hope. Two kinds of people in the world. Let me just describe this a little bit for you in a couple of funerals that I've done. One funeral was in Lake Tahoe when I pastored there. And it was a beautiful place. It was an outdoor funeral. People gathered to remember Rick. Rick was in his late 50s, died of heart disease, and people gathered to remember him. But Rick, his story was that nine years before, he'd left his family, two adolescent children and his wife, to come to Lake Tahoe with another woman, and he'd been living with her for those nine years. And then he died. He came there to gamble. And so as people gathered, we had an open time of sharing, and it was really the saddest funeral I've ever been to. Because as people shared about Rick, all they could say were things like, yeah, good old Rick, uh, he was faithful. He was always on the same stool in the sports bar. He, he would bet regularly on the horses. Yep, that was Rick. And his two children were there, didn't say a word, but you could tell they were angry and heartbroken. As I say, it was so sad and, and, and just a picture to me of absolutely no hope at all. Fast forward to a funeral I did a few weeks ago for Shannon Siglin, part of our body, 35 years old, tough life, physically had problems all through her life. And yet it was an incredible celebration of how many lives she had touched. We gathered in the fireside room. It was standing room only, packed out. People were sharing openly about how Shannon had touched their lives, how she'd gone on missions trips and all kinds of things. It was, it was just a wonderful time of celebrating her life. But it wasn't just celebrating her life. It was celebrating the fact that she's finally in a place where she's whole and healed. And we celebrated that together. And one of the most wonderful things about that celebration was that Shannon, anticipating her own death, had made a video a couple years ago of her whole life, right up to the present, and the people that were important to her, and the things she had done, and her family, and friends, and those who had touched her life, and the missions project she'd gone on. And we saw this video, and it was her gift to everyone, knowing that she would not live long but celebrating her life. And, and as we watched it, it was as if she was saying to us, remember me, but know I'm in a better place. I'm not afraid of this. I can embrace death 
because I'm going to be with the Lord. I'm okay. Two different ways of facing death. Two extreme ways. So Paul divides us into two categories. The hopeless and those who have hope. Let's describe the hopeless a little bit. Uh, I can think of a couple of categories. We could probably think of more, but... Those who do not have hope, who grieve and do not have hope, are those who, one group would be the hopeless, and I've seen these, people who really have no sense at all, no hope at all in the afterlife. And so death to them is completely final. It's completely dark. It's empty. And they grieve horribly because for them it is the absolute end. But there's another group that we could look at that Paul calls the hopeless, those who grieve with no hope. And those are the ones I would call with a false hope. Those who have a false hope. I don't know if you ever read the obituaries, but you know what? It's a good thing to do now and then. It's a good thing to remember that death is real. And to see how people face it. Just this week I was reading and there was one that said, Well, at least she's no longer in pain. I thought, how do you know? Is that a true hope? How do you know? Maybe there's more pain for her. How do you know what's after death? For us, we can't see, right? We don't know what's after death. And those who have no hope may have a false hope. They may try to have hope. They may come up with ideas like reincarnation. Well, maybe we come back as something else. Or maybe you you hear a lot of things like, well, at least they're in a better place. Well, how do you know if they're not in Christ? You see, that's wishful thinking, but it's not a sure hope. It's not a confidence. And Paul puts them in the category of grieving with no hope, no real confidence. They may have a vague sense of the afterlife, but no sure hope. I've liked studying some about the Egyptian culture because think about the pyramids and the Sphinx and all the wonderful things they built. Do you know what those are? Those are tombs. You see, they were so afraid of death that they would do everything they could to fend off death. So they built these big places where the bodies could last as long as possible. They would make mummies of the bodies. They would put in their food and little statues of servants and animals and tools to work the ground and all kinds of things that they thought they might need in the afterlife because they were so afraid of the afterlife. They just hoped something happened and continued. And so they would try to keep the body going and keep it from deteriorating as long as possible. But there were people with no hope, according to Paul. But what do people with hope look like? Well, according to Paul, it's those who grieve, but with hope. You see, believers are those who grieve with hope. Those, those who have really mixed feelings, don't we? When we lose a loved one. Because we grieve because we've lost the personal relationship with that person here on earth. They're gone. There's a hole in our lives. And we no longer get to be with them here. So we grieve. But we grieve with hope because we're confident they are in a better place. They are with the Lord. They've just stepped from this life into a new life. The sting, the terror of death is removed. And therefore, as Christians, we really can laugh in the face of the grim reaper, huh? 
because he cannot touch us. Our bodies die, but we step from there into heaven. It's simply our wedding day, ultimately. You see, death is simply our wedding day when we finally get to be with the Lord forever to stand in his presence. And so we have a sure hope, a confidence. Therefore, death is not terrifying to us. We have the sure hope that we will see them again. But let me ask you this. Could that just be a false hope? How do we know it's any more true than reincarnation or what the Egyptians thought or someone else's wishful thinking? Is our view of death really based on anything more substantial than that? Or are we just fooling ourselves? Well, you know what? The passage tells us. (laughs) Verse 14 says this. Paul writes, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Our hope is based on something absolutely substantial and true. Our foundation for our hope is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. An event that happened in history. The world was changed. Our calendar was changed. Lives were changed. The church was established. The disciples who were terrified and ran away when they arrested Jesus and crucified him. And they were hiding in a little room. And when Jesus appeared to them, suddenly they became bold for the gospel and they changed the known world. Spoke the gospel and were willing to be martyred for their faith. Why? Because they'd seen the resurrected Lord. We have an absolute historical truth. Paul said more than 500 saw the risen Christ. Paul saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. You see, our hope is a sure hope because it's based on a historical fact. Jesus died and rose again and it's alive today, working in our lives, changing our lives, reigning, establishing his kingdom on earth. So it's not wishful thinking. The foundation is absolute. It's true. Death is conquered. Jesus is the only one who stepped into death, was in the grave three days, conquered death, rose again. He's the only one who's ever entered death, the realm of death, to show us what it's like and to show us what it's like after death. Because we're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 that as Jesus has a risen body, we will have the same kind of risen body that he will. You see, he's the only one who showed us what it's like. Everything else is speculation. It's guessing. It's wishful thinking. But he showed us exactly what it's like. That's why our hope is sure. You know, humans are fascinated by stories of, of people who die and then come back to life. You know, they're, they're dead for a little while and they see a white light or other stories. They're terrified because it's horrible. They see things that terrify them. We're fascinated. Why? Because we want to know what's afterwards. But in Christ, we know. You see, the sting of death is taken away. The fear is taken away. So we are those who grieve with hope. Grieve with hope. But notice, this promise, this hope, is only for those who have fallen asleep, who have died in Jesus. In Jesus. Only Jesus entered the realm of death and conquered death. No one else did. Muhammad did not. Buddha did not. The Hindu pantheon of gods did not. No one else did, folks. 
So just remember, Jesus is the only way. Only those who fall asleep in Jesus have hope. Our world is saying, ah, there's many paths to heaven and you can go this way or that way. It is not true. Only Jesus historically stepped into history and conquered death and rose again and showed us the path, the way. So don't be fooled. Jesus is the way. And this only makes sense, doesn't it? Because what is heaven? What is eternal life? It's life with Jesus forever. It's being married to him. (laughs) That's what it is. So why would there be any other way to heaven? It isn't floating around on a cloud playing a harp. You know, we don't really like harp music anyway, do we? Very much. (laughs) That doesn't sound very, very attractive to me. But Jesus defined eternal life in this way. John 17, 3, as he's praying to his father, Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's a relationship. That's eternal life. And so we begin it. We begin heaven. Do you realize you enter heaven here when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? You are already living in heaven, a taste of it anyway. You just can't wait for that day. It's like being engaged. You've got a relationship, but it's not really consummated yet, and you're waiting for your wedding day. Well, that's what death is. It's your wedding day. So you finally get to be with him forever. So it only makes sense that Jesus is the only way because heaven is relationship with Jesus forever and ever. It's just your wedding day for those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Well, that's the foundation for our hope. But what is it it going to look like when Jesus comes back? What happens to those who die? Well, Paul goes on to tell us and gives us the substance of our hope, verses 15 through 17. But let me just give you a prelude here. Many of you have studied prophecy a lot. And you have thought about end times and and you've studied and you've heard teachers and you've got charts and graphs and all of that because you're fascinated by that. We want to know what's going to happen, don't we? Well, this is the clearest passage in all of Scripture, I believe, that I can find on what will happen at Jesus' second coming. And I've studied a lot of those graphs and I've been to seminars and I've read the Scriptures and, and you know what? None of those... Charts and graphs really fit the scripture very well, it seems to me, at least not the ones I've seen, the, the main ones. So I just encourage you to listen, set all that aside for a moment and really listen to what the passage has to say about Jesus' second coming and really hear what God wants us to hang on to as we face death. Just set those aside for a moment. Verse 15, he begins this way, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, In other words, this is directly from Christ. This is what will happen. This was some kind of insight that the Lord gave to Paul so that we would know what was going to happen in the future. It's prophetic. And the summary of these verses, John Stott gives a great summary, four points that I want to highlight here because I think it's a great summary of what will happen. Return, resurrection, rapture, and reunion. So let's look at these. Verse 16, the return. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
It says, verse 15, it says, the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. This coming of the Lord, the Greek word is parousia. So theologians have picked that up. That just means coming, arrival. But it was a Greek word used to describe Jesus' coming, but it was also common in the Greek world to describe a king coming to his kingdom. And there's great celebration and pomp and circumstance that the king has arrived. He's coming to reign. And so the, Paul picks this up and says that's what it will be like. Jesus will come. He will arrive. He will, he will be here with us. He is coming to establish his kingdom. Not to take us up somewhere else, but to establish his kingdom here. And he will, it says in verse 16, descend from heaven. Now, I think that's just by way of analogy. It isn't like he comes from someplace above us and then comes here. N.T. Wright says this, when Paul talks of Jesus descending, he doesn't suppose that Jesus is physically above us at the moment. Heaven, where Jesus is, isn't another location within our space, but it's a whole nother dimension. See, heaven's all around us. It's here. Jesus is present with us. But we can't see him because he dwells in the dimension of heaven, what the scripture calls heaven. So when he comes, he will just make himself appear in our realm, in history, in space and time. He will enter and he will return as he came once to die and rise again. He will come again to establish his kingdom Forever, And notice when he comes, he will come with a cry of command. We don't know exactly what the command will be, but I think it'll be something like, Hey, come on, guys. I'm back. Arise. The king is here. The king is back. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Now, let me tell you, will this be quiet? I don't think so. Will anybody miss it? I don't think so. When I was a kid, my mom used to say, well, if we were really loud, all six of us, just, you know, really loud, she'd say, be quiet, you're loud enough to raise the dead. (laughs) Well, when Jesus comes, it'll be loud enough to raise the dead. No one will miss it. And it describes a trumpet. Will there be a literal trumpet? I don't know for sure, but I know in the Old Testament, this is referring to Old Testament passages that talk about when the Lord comes to establish his kingdom on earth, Isaiah 27 and Zechariah 9. It talks about the trumpet will sound. And when that trumpet resounds, the people of God will be gathered together. And the judgment of those who have rejected God will begin. So it's referring to those passages that when Jesus comes, he's coming to establish his kingdom and bring his people together finally and to bring judgment. This is the return. It will be loud. It will be obvious. Everyone will know that Jesus is back. So he says, know that the return is coming. Secondly, know that there'll be resurrection. Resurrection. The end of chapter or verse 16 says this, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is what will happen to those who have died. They will rise. But notice it's the dead in Christ. In Christ. Those who have died in Him with their faith in Him 
and then their physical bodies died, they will rise first. And they will join Jesus as he comes as part of his army. Not whisked off to heaven somewhere, but coming to earth with Jesus to join him as he comes to establish his eternal kingdom here on earth. But that raises a question that a lot of people have, and that is what happens to people in the meantime between the time they die till Jesus comes and they're resurrected? Some have described it as soul sleep. Or maybe their souls go be with him and later their bodies are resurrected when he returns. How do you understand it? And there's different ways of trying to understand it. Paul says something really interesting as he's talking about this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says in verse 8, absent from the body at home with the Lord. So how can that happen? How can we immediately be with the Lord when we die and yet we rise when he comes? Here's how I understand it, and I'm not the only one who understands it this way, but this makes the most sense to me, is that God sees everything beginning to end in time, right? We live on this line of time that runs and keeps going. But God exists outside of time. He exists in heaven. He exists in eternity. So he can look and see the beginning and the end, everything happening at once. He can see it all because he exists in eternity. And so it seems to me that when we die, we step out of time into eternity with him. So I think it makes the most sense that when we die, we're absent from the body at home with the Lord. In other words, when we die, we are immediately at the second coming. Everyone who's died then, if that's true throughout history, we all arrive at the second coming at the same time. Absent from the body, at home with the Lord, we're at the second coming and we're joining him in the air as soon as we die to be with him in his new kingdom that he establishes here on earth forever. Isn't that marvelous? What a great hope. It's not that we just exist somewhere for a while until we wait for him to come back. We're with him forever and ever. Absent from the body, at home with the Lord. So that's resurrection. Those who have died rise to be with him at the second coming. Third, there's rapture of those who are still alive. Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So those who are still alive on the earth when, and are believers, when Jesus returns, they'll be caught up, snatched up is the word, to be with him, grabbed up to be with him in the air as he establishes his kingdom here. So that word snatched up, the translation for it in Latin is rapere, where we got our word rapture. That's what the rapture is. You've heard the word rapture. Rapture is those who are still alive will be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. When he shouts, when he gives us loud noise, and we who are alive will join Jesus and those with him. And Again, it won't be a secret thing. (laughs) It'll be evident to all. And we'll join him forever. So, resurrection for those who have died. Rapture for those who are still alive. And this will be a glorious, and this is the fourth part, reunion. Think of the absolute best reunion you can imagine. Those, Those who you maybe haven't been around for a long time, and you miss them, and you love them, those stories you see of somebody who's been kidnapped and then finally there's this wonderful reunion when they're set free 
or those who have been captured in Iraq and they're set free and finally get to be with their families again. My son, Jeremy, has been in Indonesia for a year and we're going to get to go see him in July. And I can't wait to see him and it'll be a wonderful reunion. But this will be even greater, won't it? When Jesus comes and all those who have died plus those who are alive are gathered together, notice the words he uses. This will be an incredible reunion. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. A reunion with the Lord and with all those we have loved so much. You see, heaven's going to be wonderfully relationally because we'll be with Jesus and we'll be with all those we have loved. All those who have died in Christ throughout history. Isn't that great? I've got some great questions to ask of Paul and Abraham and David and all those great saints throughout history. What a reunion it'll be. So Paul ends this section with verse 18. The purpose of all this. Why does he tell us all this? Is it so that we can make charts and graphs? I don't think so. I don't think he wants us to try to figure it all out. No, he says, therefore... Comfort one another with these words. He understands that death is painful. That grief is hard. That we miss those we have loved who go before us. But he says, hey, I want you to know, I don't want you to be ignorant about what's happened to them. They are going to join us who are still alive at the time when Jesus returns in heaven together. And we will be together forever. So comfort one another with these words. You see, Christians are to be different. We grieve, but we grieve differently than the world around us. Because we understand that there is something wonderful after death. The death really is our wedding day. It's not to be feared. It's to be rejoiced in. So we grieve with hope. You see, Paul is saying, there are things you need to know to handle death in a Christian way, to handle it differently than the world. He doesn't give us a lot of detail, does he? He doesn't talk about a millennium or anything else or tribulation or whatever. All he talks about is, listen, Christ is coming back. It'll be a glorious reunion. It'll be a wonderful time. So comfort one another with these words. You see, I get to do a fair amount of funerals. And I like, I don't know if that's the right word, but I'll use it. I like to do Christian funerals. Even though it's hard and you grieve and and there's loss, there's sadness. But what a tremendous opportunity to show the non-Christians, the unbelievers who come in to that funeral setting, to give them a sense that there can be true hope in Christ. That we look at death differently, that we don't have to be afraid of it, that we grieve, but we grieve with hope and with celebration and joy because we know the person is truly in a better place.